Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. First application to go over, or the package rather, is K-Icon Themes. And this is relatively easy to guess, the nature of this thing. It is uh, indeed a, a library containing classes to improve the handling of icons and applications using the KDE framework. I bet you thought it was going to be a bunch of icons. Well, we've already done the icons. Remember that was Breeze, the Breeze theme and things like that. So I, I'm pretty sure all the icons were bundled in that. This is a, a helper class such that your KDE application is able to uh, find and use the correct icons as as dictated by the system settings. Icons are a funny thing. I think there's a prevailing um, attitude out there that your system should be mostly unified in terms of its look and feel, and icons are a big part of that. That's what many of us are looking at all the time when we when we're searching for an application to launch, for instance, you go to your K menu or, or whatever menu you're using, there are often icons by the menu selections. And that's because of some, you know, I don't know, f physiological slash psychological aptitude that humans have to quickly Im sort of embody an idea in a picture. And so icons help us identify really quickly a, a certain concept or a certain, in this case, application that we want to launch. So they're very useful. But stylistically, a lot of times we, I think, again, just as kind of humans using computers, we have decided, uh, many of us have decided, that there should be some kind of unifying style to to what we, what we have to look at. And that can be tricky. Uh, I think one theory is that, well, the platform ought to publish sort of a set of guidelines and and tell people, this is what we expect your icon to look like. These are the rules. This is the color palette. This is the rough shape. We prefer rounded edges to square edges, or we prefer square edges to rounded edges. Don't use a, a letter or a number in your icon and so on, whatever the rules might be. And then you have people designing icons that are mostly sort of like within that within that space. They, they have a certain conformity to them. But then, of course, you've got the third-party, you know, what the third-party application, which, what is a third-party application ever? But in this case, it's, it's one of the outliers. It's one of the applications that says, you know what, I don't care about your icon style, or I didn't really intend my application to be run on your operating system so i never gave uh any thought to your icon uh guidelines and, and so here's my icon or, or and and worse yet maybe here's a bunch of different icons within my application and and so then you know you've got the exception you've got that one outlier and then maybe your icon designers kind of come up and, and sort of come up with an alternative icon for that one application. But you, you multiply that to the extent of the open source applications out there now, and it's just an impossible task. And there have been efforts in the past to 
to unify application sets, you know, to actually essentially cover all all known applications. You know, here's here's all here's an icon for everything that you could possibly launch. And what a what a interesting effort that is. And I don't think it generally works, but that that's one theory, right? The other theory is that maybe you, you give the user control so that if the user needs to unify their applications a little bit more, then you give them that you give them the ability to easily change the icons. And and that's fine. That works until you get into questions of, well, these icons right here are embedded in the code. They're compiled into the application. They're not looking to the system to gather icons. They're just they're there. So it gets complex. It gets really complex. And it's frustrating, I think, for a lot of people who want sort of that unified experience, especially for people who come from a platform that may have uh, sort of uh, fostered a, a very, very insular experience. Then the illusion often is that, well, all of my icons always match. They're, my system is completely unified. And, and maybe that is true for some people, you know, people who are using a very specific ecosystem of applications from a very specific set of vendors, maybe it all goes together and it just kind of works. But I think that in in a, in a the free-range computing world, uh, if I may coin a term off the cuff, um, you, you don't really get that. You don't get that you don't get the 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 super easy um well you're not satisfied rather by the by the the insular computing experience now that said i have stated relatively accurately when when i upgraded to slackware 15 is that what i'm running now what what slackware are we on anyway i have no clue i think it's 15 um let me let me just verify that i'm i'm I feel like I'm somehow have lost track of of what world I'm living in. Uh, 15.0. Wow. I haven't thought about that in ages. And now that I have, it's blowing my mind because I've been on 14 for so long. 15. When did that happen? Well, anyway, I did a bunch of shows about it. So I guess I should actually be aware of it. Uh, when I upgraded to Slackware 15, one of the things that I found myself doing was not installing a bunch of extra applications that I usually install for one reason or another. I have since that time installed here or there, you know, a couple of applications that that I, I normally have. But in general, I'm, I am actually, I have settled into a bunch of sort of a, a predictable set of applications, all of them with very nice icons available to them, um, and and many of them designed by the same sort of group. So a lot of my icons are coming from the KDE icon set just for free. They're, they're just there, and they all kind of conform to the same look and feel because they're designed by the same group. In other words, I, I feel like in the modern, even the modern open source world, I feel like a lot of icons have kind of converged into a comfortable kind of sameness, which, you know, normally I might not say that as a good thing. Being the same, being too similar, that, that's often not a good thing. 
But for visual cohesion, these icons being relatively similar, it's kind of working for me, and it's kind of nice, and I don't remember it necessarily being the case previously. Counterpoint to that, though. Previously, I think I strove for a more severe visual cohesion. Because to me, back way, 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 way a long time ago, when I was, you know, like, for me, changing your icon set was a hack. It was the th it was it was the sign of a power user. It was something that you did to show that you were aware that you were using a computer. All those other people out there with the default icons, what a bunch of suckers they were. If you changed your icon set, you you demonstrated to people that that you knew how to get in and out of file systems and you knew how to do things. So for me at at some point in my life a long time ago, um the, the idea of being able to kind of assemble a pretend supercomputer, you know, that you make out of cardboard boxes, except it's not made out of cardboard boxes, it's, it's something that you do graphically on your computer. You make your computer look like you want it to feel. And so drastic icon changes were something that I was quite fond of for a while. And I, I don't know how, how well it ever worked, to be honest. Um, and on Linux, um, I feel like you can still do that. You can you can select you know any given launcher and get properties on it, and then put in your 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 own icon for the little for for the icon that it uses, and you're good to go. You've got your own little custom icon set. But as I say, in reality, there are icons within applications, and there are icons in in squirreled away in, in little places that, that are compiled in or that are just out of your out of your immediate purview uh, and, and it just kind of starts to fall apart. So I think the place where Linux is right now with icons is actually a really nice comfortable place. And while there are icon sets out there that can change things up, a lot of times the icon sets out there don't account for the icon sets required by this desktop that you're running or that desktop that you might want to run tomorrow and so you get little quirks and missing icons or or uh you know weirdness weirdness like uh getting a i don't know a web browser assigned to your system setting icon for some weird reason you know just like quirks and and hiccups here and there and so i really do feel like having a if you want the unification having a really good desktop like kde or gnome that has uh, an eye on sort of the bigger picture it is a big, big help. Now that doesn't mean you can't have unified visual cohesion elsewhere. You could do it in, I don't know, XFCE. That might be perfectly fine doing that. I, I, I actually don't know. I haven't, I am running X, S, XFCE on my Magia desktop over in my wardrobe, but um, everyone keeps a desktop computer in their wardrobe, don't they? Um, but I, I just I haven't experimented around with icons all that much. But certainly like something like Fluxbox, where you're essentially building everything yourself. I mean, then then you get to build it yourself. You get to figure out what icons you want to use, uh, and and internal icons within applications that are compiled in are just something completely different. So it's a complex complex thing to to casually say, oh, I think I'd like to change icons now, or I think I'd like to change the theme of my icons. K-Icon theme tries to help applications manage that. It, it tries to help your KDE applications that you're writing know that the icon theme has changed. You're using something different now. And then, of course, you get into questions of fallbacks. Well, 
What if you can't find that system settings gear icon? What do you use instead? How do you determine what a good fit for a fallback would be? What kind of what category is there? It, it can be really, really tricky. And I think I mentioned on the Breeze, I think it was the Breeze one, uh, the episode that I was talking about, the Breeze icon set, I think I mentioned that, you know, back a long time ago on computers, there weren't custom icons for for a lot of things. Oh no, it was the Dolphin episode, I think, where there's thumbnail or, or FFmpeg thumbnailer or something. There, there was a time on computing where you didn't have really icons that were descriptive beyond this looks like a document of some sort, so it must be a file that I can open. This icon looks like a folder, so it must contain documents. Those were your two icons, if you were lucky. That was it. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe a, this this is a diamond-shaped icon. That must mean it's an executable. There, there's your icon set. And, and now it's so much more rich, but the price there is that it is more, more, so much more complex. Okay, that's probably enough about the K-Icon theme. Let's talk about KID3 or KID3. I think I was talking about this when I was uh, praising Elisa, E-L-I-S-A. Elisa is a really nice little music player. Um, it is written in QML instead of cute, or, well, I mean, it is cute, but it's QML rather than, uh, I guess, C++, technically speaking. Uh, although, I, there, well, we're going to get into a question of cascading foundational things. But anyway, um, Elisa is, it's a nice application. It is a lot less customizable in terms of the UI than, say, Amarok was, which for me is what Elisa is replacing. So, um, but it is a beautiful application as well. And so I spent weeks, weeks going through my entire music collection, tagging things, getting uh, album art, making sure that everything had a cover.jpg in the album directory. The whole, I, I did the whole thing for, for lots and lots of albums because I wanted to open up Elisa and to be able to see just a shelf, a virtual shelf of all my albums by art and by artist and by album name and so on. It took me a long time and I will admit that the application that I used to tag all of my music, and you have to understand a lot of my music was not tagged because I did not use tags for, well, this is the first time I've used tags. This is the first time I've actually used an application that was looking at my music according to tag and not file structure. I have always preferred just seeing, I, I, I prefer to see the file structure because then I can arbitrarily organize things. I can put, you know, these five albums that share nothing in common except the time and place when I first heard them, I can put those into a directory, and that's that. You know, so I, I, that's how I like to organize my music. It's not, it doesn't have to be alphabetical or logical or anything. It's just how I want to present it to myself. So this is the first time I've used tags, and in order to tag all those albums, hundreds of albums, I used a little application called EasyTag, which you'll notice is not KID3. I I like KID3. I have always used KID3 in the past because it was just there. Uh, and I'll probably continue to use it in the future, uh, you know, for, for, for this and that. Um, I just, I used, I ended up using EasyTag because it, I think it just kept coming up. And I, I think there was a question of it tagging, there's some format that at the time when I started this project, I don't know that KID3 was, was, was tagging. 
I could be making that up. It might have been the Opus format. Um, and now I don't know. It's it's probably it's probably fine now. Um, but the but KID three is it's a graphical tagging application. So if you've got an album, if you've got music, and you want KID three, or if you want to tag it with metadata, KID three is one way that you could do that. It is a pretty self-explanatory uh, um, application. I think you open it up. You you can open a a file in in it, and so then it becomes sort of aware of the directory that contains that file, and uh, you select the song that you want to tag or the group of songs, you know, there are several songs, if, if, if they all share an attribute such as, I don't know, the artist name, you select those songs, you know, just a click, shift, click, uh, select the artist, um, in the, in the tag version that you want to, ta- to tag it with, type in the artist name, and then maybe the album name, and then you can stop selecting them all and you just select one and you put in, for instance, the title, and then you go to the next file and you, put in the title and, and so on. So, I mean, it's it's really, really self-explanatory. When you are finished, you save your changes. It, it writes that metadata back to the files and you're done. You can continue about your day or you can continue tagging other albums f- f- all day if you want. The navigation is a little bit peculiar, possibly. It took me a little while to catch on to it, but the, the, the northwest quadrant is uh, that panel contains the i guess the files although not always the files it's always also directories and then the the bottom the south uh, the southwest quadrant contains like the the parent of whatever's in the top left panel the the northwest panel so there it's it it kind of makes sense in a weird way because the the one that you're sort of paying attention to is is the one in the upper left in the northwest qu- quadrant but of course you know what i say quadrant and actually there's only three panels but anyway the the top left that's the one you're sort of paying attention to and that's a natural place for your eye to fall i think left to right so here's a, a an album there's a song i can click on it all of the data appears in the, the in the right panel in the right hand panel that's a big panel with a bunch of tag options so that's that's kind of your main control panel but then to back out and go to another album you have to go down you have to look down to the bottom left and click either the double dot well really you click the two dots just like in bash you cd space dash dot dot that's that's here so dot dot go to the parent directory and then you're out and if you want to go further back you hit the dots again so it's got kind of a i don't know i guess what is that like an almost an old school navigational system it feels very kind of like early unix well not super early but you know early x11 sort of navigation conventions like there's not there's no icon there's no arrow or anything like that you just double double dots to go to the next uh, location but yeah so that might that might take some getting used to it took a little bit of getting used to for me but generally speaking uh, it's not that complex and it does work and in practice at least for me I often end up opening KID3 to a specific file I, I very rarely open KID3 and then navigate to the place that I want to go. It's usually the other way. I usually have found a track that didn't get tagged, right-click, open in KID3, and then and then do the changes. 
and I have actually been defaulting to KID3 uh, lately. Uh, I guess, I guess again, probably because it just comes up. Maybe I don't. I'm not really sure even why I do that. Um, it really just depends. There's no, there is no logic to it. It seems to be whatever's in the right hand menu or the right click menu. If it's if it's easy tag, then I go to easy tag. If it's KID3, then I go to KID3. They're both equally equally capable, I think, and uh, they're both great little applications that that make tagging as I guess sort of functional as it possibly can be right now. I've said before. I don't think we are really getting the most out of metadata. I don't think it's as easy to interact with as it could be. So I'm not overly happy with any application, unfortunately, that deals with metadata because I just don't feel like it's integrated enough. But that's not really the fault of the application. The applications are doing their best. You know, things like KID3 uh, and EasyTag, they're, they're doing great. They're they're trying to work with metadata. It's, I feel like, the OS, the file systems, uh, the rest of us just aren't really, really, like, making metadata a part of our lives. Okay, let's talk about K-identity management. That'll be relatively easy, because I don't have a whole lot to say about it. It's a little little library that just manages your identity within KDE PIM, the Personal Information Management Suite. So this sort of from what i can tell and and you know i haven't i haven't written code w w that that calls this library so i can't speak very precisely about what it does but from what i can tell looking over the file list and glancing at the header files it looks like this essentially ensures that when an application says to use a signature that it knows who the current user is and where their signature is located and by signature, I mean, you know, like a, a signature for like an email, for instance, which, as far as I know, is the only thing that actually uses the the signature uh, in, in KDE. But I could be wrong. I, I, there could be something else. But there are a couple of different options for identity, you know, like sort of ident identifying features, as it were, of, of, of your environment. And K-identity management is the thing that ensures a KDE application has quick uh, access to the correct um, information. All right, next is K-idle time, a singleton reporting information on idle time. Useful not only for finding out about the current idle time of a system, but also for getting notified upon idle time events, such as custom timeouts or user activity. This is... Um, this is funny if you really think about it, and you know you might not think you might not think that a computer would necessarily or should necessarily care about well idle time. So it's essentially negative space. It's the things that aren't happening. It's the thing that's it's the input that it's not receiving. That feels like that's not something you would have to account for in a computer. Who cares if you're not doing a thing? Like that doesn't make any sense. Why should your computer care? Well, as it turns out, there are a bunch of reasons it should care. Uh, it might need to care for timing a uh, a, a screen um, a screensaver. It might want to it might want to care in order to detect whether you know it's asking you for confirmation on something and you're not providing it. How long do we wait before we just assume that you know one way or the other? I mean, I don't know what we would assume. But you can assume either, uh, you know, silence means yes or silence means no, and then act accordingly. But then you have to count. You have to find that silence. It, it might matter um, if you tell your computer, 
not to do something despite idle time, which, I mean, you know, if, if we weren't accounting for idle time at all, then I guess, I guess you would never have to tell your computer not to account for it. But, but because there are events that care about the lack of input, then you are able to tell the computer to, to ignore the lack of input under cer certain circumstances. So if you're just playing a movie on your, on your screen while you're off doing something else, but you want that movie on in the background, how do you tell your computer not to, uh, you know, shut off or, or, or rest, you know, black the screen or whatever. So yeah, there are, there are weird use cases for the things that you are not doing and K idle time is, is a library for the KDE uh, framework to help KDE kind of understand when when things are not happening and for how long that has been the case. All right, speaking of idle time, I don't really count coffee time as idle time. It's a pretty productive time in the day of, of my day, but why don't we go for some theoretical idle time? Go grab a cup of coffee. We'll come back and finish up the show. <laughs> Welcome back, coffee drinker. As we drink coffee, let's talk a little bit about some listener email. I got an email from Dan, very, very useful email from Dan, and I, I don't know which Dan this is. It's not Dan Washko, I don't think. Different Dan. And he says, enjoying the, the cast from the burning hot northern hemisphere. Sorry, Dan. Um, it is quite cold down here in the south, as you can imagine. Seems nicer down under right now. Yes, I think so. Responding to your I-18N comment on... Uh, GNU World Order 472. This is an abbreviation for internationalization. <laughs> and he has the S and the Z sort of in brackets. Very clever. Uh, and it says I plus 18 letters plus N. So this is from, you can read more about this in at, on Wikipedia, wikipedia.org slash wiki slash internationalization underscore and underscore i have to scroll horizontally to read the rest of that uh, and localization you may have also seen m17n l10n l12y and a16z one of these is less like the others please keep up the good work um yeah so i don't know why i don't think to look on wikipedia first for basic questions like this i apologize dear listener but um, also, it is kind of fascinating to meet the people who do answer. So that's that's fun. But yeah, so so I-18N. 18 stands for the number of letters between the first I and the last N in the word internationalization, a usage coined at Digital Equipment Corporation in the 70s or 80s. It's, um, it's fascinating. So... Uh, L10N is for localization, and again, L, and then O-C-A-L-I-Z-A-T-I-O, and then there's N. So, I, I mean, is that an answer? <laughs> really? I mean, is that, is that an answer? I don't, I don't know. Like, why? Why was that a thing? It's really funny. Um, if you worked at Digital Equipment 
corporation in the 70s or 80s and know why people were referring to internationalization as I-18N and localization as L-10N, do, do write in and let me know because I, I don't understand the, um, the convention. But it's super clever. I, I do like it. I, I, in fact, I love it. Uh, it is the same, that has the same wacky charm as recursive acronyms for me. Like that is, that's funny and strange and a lot of fun. So, and, and I don't know, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's an argument against that. Maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe that's obscure. Maybe it's obtuse. I don't know. But it, you know, it's one of those things where ever since being a Linux user, I have known what I18N refers to. I've, I've always known that, like, not literally always, but, you know, I remember seeing that early, early on and understanding somehow, and I don't remember how, I don't remember if someone told me, I don't remember if I read it, I don't remember if it was just in context, like, oh, I18N, I have no idea what that is. Oh, but they're talking about a bunch of different languages. Okay, I18N probably has something to do with, with international stuff. And then you see it again and again, and then you, you finally catch on. So eventually you figure out what it is, and I just think it's super clever. I like it. I love it when uh, acronyms or, 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 or titles have a little bit of a puzzle to them, even though I didn't solve the puzzle in this case. But I, I do like that. I think that's a fun thing. I'm not saying it can't be overdone. It could probably be overdone. Uh, I'm not saying it's intuitive. It, it's not intuitive. But then again, like, it is an easier way to write internationalization than internationalization. You have to admit that. That's a big word. That's a big, big word. Okay, so that is, uh, that's, that's more information about KI18N from, from 472. The next application in our list is KIG, K-I-G, otherwise known as KDE Interactive Geometry. This is specifically part of the uh, K educational uh, suite of applications, and it is geared towards high school students who want to experiment around with geometry, as so many high school students do. Uh, I, I want to experiment around with geometry because it is a class that... I mean, I'm sure I had a geometry class in school, but didn't excel. So knowing more about geometry is definitely of in, an interest of mine. And KIG um, KIG is it has proven fun to, to mess around with. I I don't know that I'm getting everything out of it that I'm sort of like supposed to be getting out of it. I want to see probably more numbers than um, so far I have been able to to find. Maybe that's not the point though, you know, I mean, it could be that maybe I'm, I'm, I'm trying to equate it too much to numbers. I, I just thought, you know, from classes that that was what you were supposed to think about when you thought about shapes and lines and Bezier curves and things like that. So K, KIG, for the first couple of hours that I messed around with it, I, I really was struggling to understand sort of why I would use KIG KIG, whatever, um, over, say, Inkscape. Because really, the the activities that you're doing in KIG are a lot like Inkscape. And I just kept thinking, well, why would I want to draw shapes and, and do things in this application, which isn't terribly, it doesn't really make it all that easy to do. Uh, so why would I want to do, do that 
when I could instead just um, use Inkscape or, or, or learn SVG, you know, by code, just write the XML, just literally write XML that uses the SVG namespace and, and render things that way. Um, so I wasn't really quite getting it. And then once I started moving objects around within this space, I realized sort of the, um, the strength of this application, which, which is, you know, and I, I still don't a hundred percent understand the lesson plan here. I don't, I, I don't think I've cracked how to approach KIG properly, which makes sense because I'm the target audience. Well, not specifically, I'm not a high school student, but, um, but, but I'm, I'm someone who might want to look at this f to learn more about geom geometry. And I do feel like this would be a great tool for someone who knew geometry and decided to teach it, you know, with a tool, uh, that could illustrate certain lessons. And, and it, it, it's a dynamic space. It's a much more dynamic space than you realize. You're not just drawing shapes on a, on, on a whiteboard. You are drawing shapes that you can then transform and move often in relation to one another. And that is really, really fascinating. So you can, you can select just some points in your, in your canvas and choose to move those points and other points that you've not selected stay anchored. So let's say I draw a line from the objects lines, uh, line by two points uh, menu option. And there's a toolbar on, along the side as well, but I, I found it easier to just go to objects, find the object type that you want, and then draw that. So if I draw a line by defining two points, first of all, I do get the sense, I, I, get, the, I get the understanding from that process that, um, that the line goes on forever. So I, I understand that I've, I've defined two points, but that the, the, the trajectory, as it were, there's probably some kind of fancy geometry term for that, but like the, the line, you know, after the points, it keeps going into eternity because that's the line that's, that's, it's defined and it just keeps going unless you, you know, add another point and, and redirect it or something, or maybe that's not how geometry works. Maybe technically that line keeps going, but even, you know, if you fork it somewhere, then you have essentially two lines. I don't know. Um, I don't know the technicalities, but it's there. The line is there. And it's, it's, I, I get the sort of the, the immediate lesson that, that I've drawn two points and between those two points and beyond those two points, a line can be drawn. And therefore, if you have two lines on your canvas that don't intersect in your current window, but looks like they're starting to intersect at some point. You can make your window a little bit bigger and oh, there it is. There's the, there's the intersection. And, and there they cross over, they cross the streams and now they're going, they, they continue into the, into eternity. So that's, that's a nice little visual display, which again, you don't get in like a, a plain SVG where you're drawing a line and the line is exactly what you have drawn. You've drawn a line or a segment of a line and, and that's it. That's all you see. So that, that was good. That was interesting, a sort of interesting realization for me. Um, but the cool thing is now if I, so I have two points on this, on this particular line. So if I select one of those points, it turns red and I can move it. And the other, the other point stays anchored. So now I'm just kind of moving this, this line on kind of a swivel on a pivot and I get to see what happens to the rest of the line. What if I move the point closer? What if I move 
the line such that it's, uh, you know, going along the y-axis instead of sort of a diagonal across the x and the y, or maybe I could just make it horizontal along the x-axis, and so on. So that was kind of uh, fun to experience. But what's really cool, too, is that you can then, let's say, I'll go to object uh, and go to, uh, where's the circle? Circles and arcs. And again, I'm just, I'm a simple, simple person, so I'm just going to grab a circle and I draw a circle you click and then you kind of get to define the 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 um diameter of the circle by just dragging you don't click and drag you just drag so I've, I've defined the center point and then you drag out and you anchor it somewhere so now you have two points on your circle and once again if you select for instance uh just that outer circle then you can resize the circle if you select uh, the both points obviously you can you know you can click the the origin point and move that around but you can also select and this is when it gets really crazy you can select like the the circle and the line and you can move the the circle and and one of the dots on the line and so now the line is on a pivot but you're moving the circle and this other dot sort of in relation to that pivot and and so you get to see the interaction of of those things moving in relation to one another. I have no idea if I'm learning anything from this, but it's really cool. And one of the unexpected things that I, I, I don't know if learning is the correct term, but, but something that was fun to experience was this kind of um, really fascinating, spontaneous um, construction that I was able to do with with just a circle and a line again and I'm doing it right now um, but you so if you if you anchor the line to the circle you know, just by selecting um, you can create you can mimic a um, a little bit of a mechanical system there you can you can create like a gear uh, pulling a, or, or moving a, a lever and and so you can build almost simple machines with this and 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 it's fascinating to to see the interaction of the of the objects now again i don't know if that's the sort of the right lesson to be taking away from this uh, it's probably not there's probably a bunch of math stuff that i'm completely missing here and and it would be fascinating i guess to 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 try you know more more things with it but and to sort of yeah maybe delve into into the other I don't know functions of this application. But I will admit that I I don't I, I just I don't have the the background for it. Um, but the the manual the the handbook for Kig is is pretty good. Um, I I read it pretty, I think to the end. Um, and I mean, as far as I can tell, the use case is more or less what I was using it for, which is just to um, to draw stuff. And then potentially the one thing that I didn't try from the manual was uh, the macro functions. So you can create macros as well. And then the, you know, so you can you can create shapes and then create macros to to instantly replicate those shapes later on so you can define your own sort of like yeah shapes and and have those um easily repeatable if you want to and there are a lot of shapes uh you know there there there's there are arcs and circles and conics and triangles and polygons and you know there there's a lot there so understanding 
the the shapes and how the point relate to you know the lines all that seems to be something that is programmed into this application i i don't feel like i understand the underlying math lesson if there is one uh you can i i I did notice that you could you can change the coordinate system so it defaults to Euclidean but you can also use polar um so I guess that's something I didn't notice a difference so I don't know if I'm just not seeing the panel where this stuff is sort of exposed or or what but I'm I didn't I didn't see I was hoping for something really, really exciting, like it's going to turn the world, you know, upside down and and into a parabolic grid or something. And it's just, it didn't really, it, it, there hasn't been, I, I haven't been able to sort of get into what I think should be, I, I should be able to see behind all of the shapes that I'm drawing. I feel like I have more insight almost into an SVG because at least then you can see sort of the definition of those shapes. Whereas right now, it really is, it's just literal, it's drawings with nodes on them. And as interesting and as entertaining as that was for a little while, um, after a while, I started to want to understand more about what I was was doing, and, and I just wasn't, I was not able to find that information out. But that could just be because I'm not knowing where to look, but like I say, I did read the handbook. Maybe I missed it. Maybe I just maybe I just flipped past that part and just completely breezed past it. Um, either way, though, I think at at the very least, bare minimum, I think this would be a a, a great tool for someone teaching geometry. So if you happen to be a math teacher, and I know I have at least two mathematicians who sometimes listen to this show, at least two, possibly three, um, then then this could be really cool. KIG, K-I-G. This could be something where you could demonstrate some of those crazy geometry principles that you're teaching people right here in real time uh, with, with really a lot of dynamic sort of movement and resizing and relationships to one another. It's fascinating stuff. Um, but I, I wasn't able to get much farther than, um, just sort of the basics. Really fascinating application though. Check it out. Check it out if at all you like shapes or geometry. So there we go. I'm not saving that. I, oh, I should have saved it and then looked at the file format. Hold on. I'm going to pause. Okay. I've, I've, I drew a circle and saved the file and things got a lot more interesting. <laughs> I have to admit, and I, I don't mean to be so easy to impress, but this is really cool. So if you save a KIG file out as a, as a document, just save, you know, and it'll ask you what to name it. I called it my KIG, mykig.kig. Open it up in your favorite text editor. I opened it up in Emacs out of out of habit, and it's all XML. It's not SVG, and I, I don't really know SVG well enough to glance at this and decide whether this shares substantially any any resemblance to SVG. It doesn't, to me, look a whole lot like SVG, but like I say, I don't really know SVG that well from the XML, so I could be I could just be missing something super obvious. But the doc type is KIG document, so I mean, it's it's not strictly, and XML is quite strict, it's not strictly SVG. KIG document, axes 1, compatibility version, grid version, coordinate system Euclidean, because this is a, this was a fresh document. Uh, data type, 
equals double or data uh, type equals double id equals one minus two dot zero eight six zero three close data data type double id two one dot zero two seven two five close data data type double id three zero dot two one nine seven five one so those are the, that's um, within sort of this hierarchy uh, element. And let's see how, how long does this, yeah, so it doesn't go on long. So it's defining the points somewhere there, obviously. Uh, it, it talks about a fixed point. I think I, I must have made a node somewhere more or less on accident. I think I had a node somewhere that was not inside of my circle. So that's that's causing a little bit of confusion here. Shouldn't have done that. But then there's a separate element for the view, the viewport. Or, you know, it's it's just view in the XML. But I'm assuming that's the canvas that I was seeing. And those are the, that's the draw. Style equals solid line. Point style equals round. Shown true color 0000FF. So RGBB. Uh, and then width minus one font, noto sans. I, oh, I guess, was there a label? I don't think there's a label there. That's interesting. I guess that's a, probably a thing because you can do text la labels. So maybe it just defaults to, to noto sans, uh, 10, negative one, five, 50, zero, 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 zero. I could probably think about those values and figure out what they were. Actually, zeros must have something to do with fill, because none of those. No, maybe not, because there's three. There's three different solid lines, interestingly, and I don't remember. I guess I could just open this back up in in Kig to see what to see the. Yeah, no, I don't have a. I don't have a window. I don't have a node rather outside of my circle. It is just this circle there. I've just readjusted it a little bit and saved it again. Open it back up in Emacs and everything has changed no not everything has changed okay so the viewport port code is describing the style the actual locations are provided in the in the hierarchy the data types because now it's negative 3.61129 and 1 and 1 so that's yeah that's like defining something and then there's an object type fixed point so that's one of the nodes and then another fixed point it looks like which would be the other node so one is the origin point one is the uh the the uh, the circumference um marker or whatever or i guess that would be a radius marker because yeah okay because it goes from center point to outside so the edge marker and then there's the circle bcp which uh is an object type yeah okay so i don't think i could reverse engineer this well enough to draw accurately what this is representing but it's just fascinating it is so fascinating to see this kind of data represented in a way that you know somewhat kind of makes sense it's very cool so if if you are either a fan of geography or a fan of xml take a look at kig speaking of things starting with kig the next application the final one for this episode is kigo or kigo kigo k-i-g-o it really should be K-Go, because it is the game of Go for KDEs. K-Go. But for whatever reason, it's K-Go. K-Go. The, the, the weird thing about this game, for me, uh, well, first of all, not the game, the application. The weird thing about the application is that when you first launch it, quite probably, it'll give you an error. I, I got the error. And I assume that's because uh, because Slackware doesn't ship with the thing that this application apparently depends upon. And it, it's 
it, so it's a, it's a little bit weird. It's not a lot weird. It's just a little bit weird. You you launch it and it doesn't work. And, and in fact, it says it, it very helpfully gives you an error at the bottom of your application window saying that you need to install a Go engine. Now, I understand that Go is a game. I've heard of Go. I, I don't know that I've played it. I believe I know how to play it, so maybe I have played it. But I, I know what Go is. And when I read that error message, I literally thought they were talking about the Go programming language. And so I clicked on configure, configuration, and I gave it the path to user lib64 go slash bin slash go to the Go programming, the, the Go executable. And I could not understand why it was not recognizing that. Then it occurred to me, I mean, it says right here, for instance, GNU Go. But to me, I just thought, okay, GNU Go. I guess GNU has a version of the Go programming language called GNU Go. No, no, they're not talking about that. This is like XChess or, or GNU Chess, whatever. Um, this is like a front end for the, in this case, a Go, the game, engine. Just like uh, GNU Chess would be the engine for something like Knights or Keyboard or, or what is it, XChess or, or whatever. So there are front ends, There there's the engine. So... K-I-G-O or Kigo or Kigo or Kygo uh, is the front end, the graphical front end for this GNU Go uh, Go engine. Now, I don't have GNU Go installed. I'm, I'm honestly not going to install it. It's just not something that I, I believe that I will use, so I'm not going to bother installing it. I'm sure it is a very, very fun game, and I'm, I'm imagining that K-I-G-O is a, a really good front end for it. But um, it's just not my, that's not my game. So I will not be installing it to try it. I have seen it. It looks great. If you're a fan of Go, try out K-I-G-O. Let me know how it is as as in, as in front ends for Go games go. I, I imagine it's probably quite serviceable. I mean, Knights and Keyboard and things like that, they work for chess. So I'm, I'm assuming this is probably going to be the same, same kind of success. But that's what K-I-G-O is. I don't know why it's not called K-Go. And there you go. That's the game. And that's the episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
Well done, sir. 